Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Do you want me? If you do, there's something you've got to get for me. Well, what is it you have to give me then? Stable full of big racing stallion. Oh, no, no, no. Anybody who really wants me will have to buy me. <coughs> Orators, orange rubber gloves. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. It's 2022. It's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Uh, so far, so good. Everything's going great this year so far. <laughs> <laughs> Shining at the end of every day. We made it. We made it. Did you it. make a New Year's resolution? Um, no. Drink less is always top of the list. And uh, no, I've already broken that resolution, so... It's okay. How about you? Well, we did make one for Cinema 60, at least. Yeah. We're going to try this year to shake things up around here and stretch ourselves and choose topics that are, uh, you know, a little outside of our comfort zones this year. So get ready for some countries and genres that we don't know much about, that kind of thing. Yeah. And hopefully it'll uh, inspire people to, to get back to us and say, you know, you were totally wrong about this because we absolutely <laughs> welcome that. We do. I'm I'm all for it. And don't worry, it's nothing's really gonna nothing's gonna change around. We're still gonna have Kiss Mary Kill. I'm still forcing Bart to watch Bond. He might force me to watch some sports movies. Not that I want to, it's just as a punishment to you. <laughs> I deserve it at this point. I'm I'm aware. But yes, we do have an actual exciting announcement. We've decided that enough is enough. And if you people wanna send us money, then gosh darn it. We should make that as simple as possible for you. <laughs> yeah. So ta-da, we have a Patreon now. Yep, it's us and everyone else in the entire world. Uh, it comes with three tiers, has lots of extras. We are launching it right now. And Bart has some uh, like 100 plus entries already added to this Patreon. Yeah, 60 years ago today, I have I caught it up to the present. So you can go back and see what, what came out every week, 60 years ago from starting the first week of 1960 yeah and then we're also doing um many episodes of a podcast that's going to be a spinoff of cinema 60 called lovin's where we are watching movies that are about life in the 1960s but were not made in the 60s they're kind of mini episodes just sort of sh shorter shorter things about recent movies or more recent movies about the 60s We've got some obvious things coming up and, and some uh, some not so obvious, but that's another thing where we uh, we would be glad to hear from you if there are some uh, some movies that are about the 60s made after the 60s that you want us to talk about. We'll we'll do a, we'll do do a little half hour episode for you. Exactly. And we'll, we're even going to release one of those uh, publicly for you guys to to sample if you want to hear what that's like. So. Yeah, and there's other stuff, too, involved. And uh, you can check that out on patreon.com slash cinema60. 
check it out. It'll also be linked on cinema60.com, our website. But now we've got a Kiss, Mary Kill episode. We haven't done one in a while. I mean, I think we're still on schedule, basically, if you exclude uh, you know, guest episodes, which we haven't done, and uh, and things like that. We're, we're on schedule. It's 1967. Ironic, because that's Sidney Poitier's big year. Like, it was, it was the year where he had three huge movies. He's recently departed. He, he, he just left us. We're not really going to talk about Sidney Poitier too much this episode, because... I don't know. I've I've seen most of his '60s movies, and we've we've talked about a few of them. We'll get to Sidney Poitier. We'll we'll do a whole episode on him sooner or later. But we miss you, Sidney. You're pretty important to this project that we're we're doing here. Definitely. The big movies of 1967. Uh, the the top ten money makers. Number one, The Graduate. Number two, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Number three, Bonnie and Clyde. Four, The Dirty Dozen. Five, Valley of the Dolls. Six, To Sir With Love. Seven, You Only Live Twice. Eight, Thoroughly Modern Millie. Nine, The Jungle Book. And ten is Camelot. Yeah, In the Heat of the Night is the only big Sidney Poitier movie that was uh, missing from that list. And uh, I'm actually surprised. Not a bad list. No, they're they're pretty good movies. Usually these lists are really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true, but 67 was the big the big turning point in Hollywood. It's sort of the the first year of new Hollywood. It's the you know there's that that book Pictures at the Revolution that's about the the five movies that were nominated for best picture and it sort of really shows the the divide that was happening this year um, between The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and and sort of in the heat of the night, just sort of leaning into this this new style of Hollywood. And then uh, Dr. Doolittle and uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, I think, were the were the other two. And those were the the old Hollywood style films. And uh, so, yeah, we're we're in a real transitional year here. Some of the other big ones from this year that we've already covered on the show. Uh, Belle de Jour, Bedazzled, Two for the Road, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Branded to Kill, The President's Analyst. Great movie. Yeah, better than I, better than we thought, and uh, and deserving of your attention. La Terra Trema, Fireman's Ball, Sweet Love Bitter, The Trip. Great Green. movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you. I know you've got some other favorites from this year too. I know you like Le Samurai a lot. Hell yeah! And uh, Don't Look Back. I'm sure you must like. Love it. Point Blank. The Love producers. It. Love it. Young Girls of Rochefort. Cool Hand Luke. It's a big year. A lot of good stuff. It does depress me a little bit when I realize just how much I love from the late 60s. Like, in a lot of ways, these movies take a real no time. <laughs> <laughs> but 67, I feel like this is like right for me, in my own personal taste, this is like right when the 60s gets like red hot. Yeah, it's true. But you're uh, you're definitely a new Hollywood fan. You you would just as soon do Cinema 70 as Cinema 60, I think. 100%. <laughs> Whereas I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I just like the need... culture of this. Like, I like the music of the 60s better than I like the music of the 70s. And I think that's like, that's the deciding. And and then the fashion and stuff like that. Like, you know, the, the, the books. I don't know. I like what was happening in world cinema in the 60s and the 70s. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty bored by a lot of what's coming out of other countries while while American films are, are getting a lot more interesting, you know, it turns into sex and violence around the world uh, in the 70s. So, you know, ho-hum, give me the 60s. 
Um, so Kiss, Mary Kill, for, for those of you who've been following us, you probably know what this is already, but uh, Jenna and I have each picked three movies each from 1967, one movie that we love, one movie that we hate, and one that we've been meaning to try for a while, although I, I, I pre- presented those in the wrong order. But uh, yeah, Kiss is, uh, we're going to start with the Kiss movies which are are the movies that we've been uh, we've been itching to see but haven't yet. And I'm just going to jump in with my own choice, which is Peppermint Frappe. Carlos Saura, a Spanish director, one of the one of the biggies that I actually am kind of upset with myself for not knowing more about. I've seen his Cria Cuervos uh, movie, and uh, actually think that's about it. Like I've seen, he did did a lot of dance movies starting in the '80s. You know, his Carmen and El, El Amor Brujo, and he did documentaries on flamenco and tango. Although I think tango is not is a feature but anyway he's you know after Almodovar and and Bunuel maybe Berlanga he's uh, the biggest Spanish filmmaker and I needed to know more about him so Peppermint Frappe is the first movie he made that uh, that got a lot of attention internationally so I said let's, let's do it it's sort of an homage to Bunuel he actually somewhere in the credits he says for Bunuel you know our, our main character kind of looks like Louis Bunuel the fairly well-known Spanish actor, Jose Luis Lopez Vazquez. And he plays a doctor who is obsessed with beauty as he's cutting pictures of, uh, of, of fashion models out of magazines. And uh, he's uh, sort of obsessed with this ideal woman that he saw one time at uh, when he was in Calanda, which is where Bunuel's from. And uh, he, he sees her playing the drums at the at the drum festival where and you you hear the drums of Kalanda in uh, in a lot of Bunuel films. Uh, if you go back to that episode, I, I say a little bit about those drums. Yeah, and so the movie starts with him having a reunion with an old friend that he grew up with but hadn't seen in a while, and he's uh, he's married to this American woman played by Geraldine Chaplin, Elena. She's blonde and and very, you know, very much of the time fashion wise, like has very rich tastes and yeah. and is sort of this um, she, she looks like she could could have come out of one of these magazines, these fashion magazines that he's obsessed with. And and he thinks that she is this woman that he saw at this Kalanda festival and, is, you know, becomes obsessed with her and, and just wants to wants to spend time with her. She's not very interested in him, but he's uh you know, he takes her out on the town. He sort of tries to entertain her while uh, while his his old friend uh, Pablo, is his name, is uh, you know, busy doing other things. You know, he eventually confesses his obsession with her to her, if it, as if it weren't obvious enough, and she she rejects him. And he uh, so he's got uh, he's got this nurse in his practice that uh, who's is in love with him, is just you know thinks 
he's the greatest thing in the world. Uh, Anna, who is also played by Geraldine Chaplin, but she's uh, in, in, in the role of Anna. She's uh, she's very mousy and has dark hair and doesn't wear makeup. And uh, he, he eventually uh, this movie eventually takes on some sort of Hitchcockian vertigo type aspects where he tries to turn Anna into Elena by making her dress the way that she does and and wear a blonde wig and uh, and so uh, so yeah just just gets more obsessive from there um, and it's uh, it's not a fun movie to watch necessarily Julian the the main character is uh, is an awful person I mean you never like him at all um, but he's you know in that Bunuel sort of way you sort of get caught up in his obsessions and uh want to want to see how things play out it's also um a criticism of franco you know I've, I've watched enough spanish films that are critical of the franco era that i kind of know that i don't know enough <laughs> about that regime to really pick up on a lot of the satire and the you know commentary that it's making on on fascism, I mean, the, this movie is—it's—it's it's pretty obvious that uh, that it's you know about fascism. It, Julian is 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 molding people into you know his vision of them, and is not uh, you know is is only interested in his own desires and doesn't doesn't care about how that affects others around him. And uh, you know, on a, on a vague level, I, I see the uh, how how it's critical of. Franco and fascism, but uh, I'm sure there are a lot of details that I, I missed here, but it's still, it's a pretty fascinating movie. And it, one of those things where, where it gets worse and worse and it's sort of a, like a, like a train wreck. You can't, you can't turn away, even though what you're watching is not, uh, not particularly enjoyable. what do you think of this one? I was, I was a little bit mixed on this one in the, just in the sense that it felt, it felt really specifically political which as you said is is fine and that's that's what it's celebrated for but when you're not living in it you know it is it is uh it's the type of movie you have to do research in order to to fully grasp as you said it's not that it's not enjoyable it's it's fine i've just if it had been i i guess like i was coming into this with just the the a vague understanding of what this was about, I was kind of hoping for it to be a little broader, like hoping for it to be a little bit more almost like the skin I live in or something. Like I was expecting something mm -hmm. that which which has plenty to say. You know, it's not only about a, a mad doctor or whatever, but like you know, it, there you can like watch it on that level and sort of even enjoy it just as like that. And this was a movie that like it's hard to watch on only that level and enjoy it quote unquote because it it leaves you stuck with this creep for <laughs> an hour and a half and he's such a he's such a horrible person i mean like the thing that it reminded me of uh immediate political thing it had reminded me of was like andrew cuomo <laughs> mm -hmm. you know it's like being stuck with him and then you know everything he wants happens uh and and you know his life is beautiful because obviously you know fascism wins you know which isn't to say that it's obviously it's not a pro-fascist film but it's just that it, it's a little rough to to have to be with somebody like that who just you know gets everything he wants in a way it actually reminded me of investigation of a citizen above suspicion the mm -hmm. elio petri movie 
I can't like compare it completely, but I think that's a movie for me that does something very similar where you have a, a, you know, a horror story that has very overt and specific political points, but it also is broad. It it goes more broadly into the philosophy of, of all of it and the psychology of all of it, as opposed to just, you know, stopping at satire. Yeah. I mean, this does get into the psychology of it a bit but I couldn't really get much deeper into it than, than, yeah, this is, this is how a fascist thinks, but yeah, yeah. The, uh, the Petri movie is a good comparison. I mean, a lot of it is just watching his cruelty, especially the way that he treats Anna, his nurse who wants to do anything to please him. When he realizes he can't get Elena, he invites her over for dinner and gets her onto his rowing machine. And it's sort of awful to watch him like trying to you know talking about her getting in shape and how she needs to think about her body and like telling her that she has to you know just do a hundred of these and and uh, and she's you know trying to please him and it's you know it's it's a lot of it's a lot of things like that it's it's just watching people cave in to to fascism until it's uh, until it's too late yeah it's just sort of watching julian you know just consume things and and take things. You know, you feel a lot of discomfort when you're watching him obsess over Elena and you know he's so obvious about how he you know wants her needs to possess her. You end up being a little embarrassed for him at times because he's so obvious about what he wants and he he's he's in a position of weakness when it comes to his his obsession with Elena. And she's in control there. So in a way, you, you feel uncomfortable for him because he, he he wants this woman but doesn't have any cards to play. And he but he you know gets more and more forceful and you get more and more embarrassed for him. And and uh, so he takes that out on Anna. He uh, you know, he he can control her. So he you know shapes her into what he wants her to be. So he's kind of a complex character in a way like. You, you never like him, but you were able to sort of get get inside his head and, you know, feel his discomfort and feel his embarrassment. And Well, it's also like, you know, it, it's him looking at Elena as the symbol of, of everything that he, you know, this cosmopolitan, free spirited, like he thinks he saw her at a drum circle and she says, no, that wasn't me. But, um, you know, it's like it that's where like it it felt a little bit too overtly political in that like her and and pablo end up kind of representing this sort of like cosmopolitan couple and it's sort of everything that julian as the fascist both wants to be but also wants to control but i guess i guess you can't totally blame them it it, it does sort of i mean there's red flags but it's not total it's not as overt obviously to them as it is to us watching from uh julian's point of view but you know, that the fact that he basically that he can't control that he can't um, win them over or win win Elena over the way that he wants. So he has to then, you know, mold and bully and, and force somebody else into the same mold. But it but it isn't. It's like this this different corrupt version of her that he has to make. And then he has to kill her to get rid of, you know, the, the shame of not being able to control her. And so I don't know, I guess it maybe maybe what i wanted a little bit was something that was more damning like i wanted stuff that was just even more like that went even further than this movie goes maybe that's that's part of my 
problem with it. More broadly political is really what I mean. And and that's but that's me. That's just I don't know. I, but it's from 1967, so it's it's interesting for 1967. It's just that it's it's a little basic. <laughs> you know, I I feel like um it's not it's not clever enough in a way, but um but I'm also, you know, saying this with years and decades of other movies that have come out that do similar things. So, yeah. And it's definitely making some analogies or it's got some metaphors there that I that I saw but couldn't necessarily understand. Like, it's no mistake that Elena is American. And if Julian is is representing Spain and Franco, then clearly all Spain wants to do is to, you know, impress the these uh, more sophisticated you know, Western, you know, English speaking countries, America and England, and, uh, you know, wants wants to be like them and wants 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 them to love him. And when they don't, he uh, you know, has to create his own dollhouse, his own his own world where uh, the the people you know that he he wants to admire them or he are in his control so there's i guess but that maybe that's it is that i i kind of wish that this had been um a little harder on elena in a way you know i not that that she deserves <laughs> what what it comes to her but i would have appreciated her being a, a sort of a broader but maybe it's also because i'm American that I kind of come in and I'm like, that's it. We got, we got, <laughs> we got way worse women here. <laughs> yeah. But she is really shallow and you don't like you, you are enough on Julian's side where you're thinking, why, why is he so obsessed with her? Like there's not, you know, there's nothing more than she's surface spirit. Yeah. There's she's, she's just so surfacey. Like yeah. she might as well just be like a cutout from a magazine, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's fairly damning of her, but not in a, you know, really barbed way, I guess. Well, maybe, maybe that's it. Is <laughs> <laughs> just everyone's so unlikable. It's hard to, it's, it's hard to latch on to anything here. And, and it's not even like, they're not charming enough to be really fun to watch for an hour and a half. You know, like I could, I, I don't know. It just, this movie didn't, it didn't grip me. And yeah. I feel bad about it because obviously it's an important film. <laughs> if you're in the mood to, for cruelty, it's a good one to watch. And I'm generally in the mood for to watch a little cruelty that's smartly done. And that this movie fills that bill. Yeah. I uh, it, it makes me curious to watch more Sarah films. Uh, and and I will. I mean, he made a, quite a few movies in the in the 60s. This is the only really well-known one from that time. The Hunt is fairly well-known. But he's uh, he's in his 90s now and he's still making films. So there's a there's a huge body of work to explore there. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to get to it. I'm going to tackle it. This this movie was enough to make me want to explore more. I look forward to the time where I rewatch this and think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Cuz I'm sure it'll happen once I've also watched more movies of his and get more on his wavelength. And it is regarded that way among certain people. So, we we probably just didn't come to it with with enough to to get all we we should have out of it but check it out my turn for for kissing was hero stratus from 1967 
which is directed by Don Levy, or as Bart calls it, what did you call it? Erostridus. Erostridus, yeah. because yeah, it's not... <laughs> it's named after <laughs> it's named after a you know a Greek, not hero, but sort of mythical mythical figure who. Uh, I guess he he was an arson and he wanted to become famous by uh, by setting Athens on fire or something. So uh, you know, there I think uh, you know one one of the big playwrights wrote a play about him, Aeschylus or or something. But uh, yeah, this is this is Don Levy's uh, sort of remake of the Erostratus tale. But as a um, stupid American. And the the fact that this is a British movie, I feel like the the land of fajitas. Um, <laughs> I am gonna go ahead and call it Hero Stratus. It's it's about a young poet named Max, who's played by Michael Gothard, who decides that life isn't worth living and uh, he wants to commit suicide, but he wants to go out with a bang. So he shows up to the best ad agency in London and pushes his way into the top executive's office and says i want you guys to stage my suicide uh, and let's make it like a big commercial to do and and shock the entire city and farson peter stevens the ad executive is like great sounds great (laughs) (laughs) this is a movie i've been meaning to watch for a really really long time actually because it's 100 percent up my alley (laughs) just that description alone is like sign me up 100 my kind of movie uh and it and it it didn't disappoint in that sense i mean it's definitely off the top of your head you were writing a joke about what an art film is you'd probably hit every single beat in this movie (laughs) you know this like this movie has got it all it's got a frustrated poet who lives in a black and white crumbling room and destroys it in a fit of emotion with an axe this movie has alan ginsburg reading poetry over the stock footage of world war ii and cattles being slaughtered while a sexy lady does striptease being intercut with the the meat being ripped off of bones uh it has sex scenes followed by a lot of screaming like this this movie's got it all it has helen mirren selling rubber gloves with her cleavage Yes, it's her first role, <laughs> Helen Mirren's first role. Which, um, it, it has so this movie is is quite long. It's like three hours, basically, right? At, at least. If it, it feels, to. It, I and I, it feels longer than it is, even, which is not to like this. There's a lot of great stuff. Oh my in this gosh, movie. it's only 142 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. It feels like it's three hours long. Yes, it, there's there's a lot of good stuff in this movie, and I didn't like it, but I'm going to tell you that you should watch it because <laughs> what did you think about this movie? It feels really important. Like I f- feel like I'm seeing the origins of a lot of stuff. I really do like right. in there. Um, like that Nicholas rogue style of editing where things are intercut with, you know, uh, this associative editing where you, it'll just cut to stock footage of things that, that are you know supposed to make you feel a certain way. It's uh, it feels groundbreaking and, it's really interesting to watch for that reason, but I feel like other movies have done it better since then, but they probably wouldn't have ever gotten there without this film. So yeah, it's not a pleasure to watch. And it's another one where the the main character is so awful and unlikable that it's a little hard to just spend two hours and 22 minutes with him. 
But the problem with this one is you really, uh, as opposed to Julian in, in Peppermint Frappe, you, I think you are supposed to kind of like Max. Like he's a, you know, anti-establishment. Uh, You're meant to love him. Yeah, you're supposed to think he's sort of cool because he just doesn't give a fuck and he does whatever he wants and will say whatever he wants to anybody. And and his antisocial behavior is supposed to be appealing, but it's really, you know, he's just full of himself. He's a blowhard. He's not a fraction as charming as he thinks he is. Yeah, he's awful. But in that late 60s anti-establishment way where you're supposed to love him. Uh, I will say, as far as this, I, I agree with you. This movie does feel like it it pioneers a lot of other films that I like way better. Though I will, uh, again, give credit to Elio Petri, this time being first in pioneering the media spectacle murder comedy <laughs> with The Tenth Victim, which is my favorite movie. Um, yeah, I think there's a couple of things about this beyond the fact that it's like painfully pretentious as you said it has this you know here, here's the thing <laughs> it is very very low budget movie that took a long time to get made which i have i have respect for in that in that sense but um it, it falls through some pitfalls of of being what it is <laughs> i mean for one the the sound is terrible in this movie the the, the recording is so shoestring it's sometimes near impossible to hear the dialogue because they're standing on the top of a parking garage open air or there's like one scene where in in the end that everyone's being like dead serious dead quiet in this warehouse and suddenly you hear a plane fly through it and it's funny and i can't tell if like the movie even knowingly knows that that's funny it doesn't feel that on purpose but um they obviously had to they left it in and i don't know why you don't think it was added in post i why like it like it could be but the fact that the rest of the sound is so terrible it doesn't i that's not clear to me yeah And then I was reading briefly like this. There's a sight and sound interview with Don Levy from ni- on set from 1965 where, you know, he's talking about it, it's this classic d- director thing of we wanted to get more real. So we, you know, we took out all the artifice and, you know, we created broken syntax of real speech and we wanted to have these characters reveal their deepest intensities and draw directly from their subconscious. And he claims the actors appear to be in a state akin to hypnosis, (laughs) you know, and it's like, and you watch it and you're like, it's called bad acting. (laughs) Well, and it's also, I, I mean, I don't know how much of this is actually improvised. I think I read somewhere that he, you know, would present the actors with the scenario and they would have to come up with the lines themselves or something like that. And it's really obvious because it takes them so long to say the thing that they're trying to say. And it's really repetitive. And that was my biggest problem with this, like quote unquote realism is that I want the illusion of realism. I don't want to hear people talking like they actually talk in real life because it's, it's boring. It's not exactly. It's not, you know, you want people to get to the point in the movies. Exactly. And, and, you know, and that's something that I'm, I'm always um, on about. Uh, if you want to get something that feels real, that you, you have to still, you're, you're presenting it through a camera, you're presenting it on a set. There are so many layers of artifice that are already inherent in the medium that you're trying to tell it in. Don't turn around and act like you're being a, a genius by saying, Actually, there's no script. Just like say it and we'll use the light as it passes. Like it doesn't, (laughs) it looks worse because it's already being presented to you through so many filters and steps and layers that 
it, it doesn't help the reality of it. It just makes it, it makes, takes you the, the viewer um, out of the, of the world of accepting that I'm watching something on a screen and makes you feel self-conscious and, and makes you realize what am I doing here? Like this is boring and lame. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, apparently that see, there's a scene, the final scene in this movie where, I, I mean, this is a kind of movie that you sort of can't spoil because it's so disjointed that even if I tell you about entire scenes, it doesn't really take away from anything. But there's a scene in the end where the, the main female character, Cleo, is just sort of standing there and, and screaming, basically. It's this like emotional uh, release, you know, deep from her deepest soul and subconscious. And apparently when they were shooting this in the way that they built it up on set and the way that they recorded this, members of the crew were really frazzled by it and found it too upsetting to watch and didn't, you know, so like apparently this really affected people. But the problem is in this film, the the tone change from what this movie is trying to do at the beginning and then where it goes to the end is just such whiplash that I found it really, really hard to take sincerely. And this movie really, for considering the premise, which I think is inherently funny, uh, this movie has not a real sense of humor. It uses humor to, in the beginning to a degree, like there's these fake commercials, like you mentioned with Helen Mirren. It's, her commercial's the best one where it's, you know, trying to, to sell gloves and it's just all about her body and it, and it's just great. It's a sharp critique of, of the way that, that advertising definitely was in the sixties and still is to this day in a lot of ways. At this point, it, it seems obvious too, though. I don't think, you know, if it was groundbreaking for its time, it's certainly the most overtread thing that you can possibly imagine at this point in time. <laughs> You know, but I, it's like the problem is that a lot of this stuff is it's inherently amusing because it's calling out these sort of visual juxtapositions. And then in the end, what this movie ends up doing is, I mean, it be it basically becomes a movie about sex and that like getting laid will, will change your whole life. And it's just and it means that really sincerely. <laughs> and it's just such a, you know, silly, childish kind of note for everything else that I feel like is, you know, it's clear that he, he hates consumerism. It's clear that he hates the artifice and that in the end, like the answer is what sex get laid once. Like I just <laughs> I don't get it. I, well, I mean, I think the point is that he is striving to be adored. He wants everyone to love him. He wants to be a famous poet and he wants all, all the attention of, of everybody, of all the important, you know, literary people, but he can't, and nobody will notice him. I think the moral of the story is by the end, just a little, you know, having having a single person care about you can can be enough. He should aim lower. He doesn't need everybody to love him. Just just a single person will be enough to to make his life a lot better. That would have been such a stronger message <laughs> if it hadn't been done the way that it was done, though, because as it is, it ends up being this sort of like incel-esque screaming and crying kind of ridiculous pretentiousness. I think that if it had gone for that more clearer and maybe with better dialogue, maybe with better, uh, more with more brevity, um, and then still had the same ending that it had, it would have been great. You know, like there's there's the bones of something really interesting here. And even though I didn't like this movie, I, I like I would totally recommend <laughs> people watch it because it's interesting. There's nothing else like this movie. You know, as much as right. other movies have taken some of the interesting things that it's done and done them better. 
there you'll you'll never see another movie like this it's uh, just the way it's put together it's it's so like i don't know if there are too many you know you, there was last year at Mary and bad but there weren't too many movies where the the timeline is all jumbled the way it is or you don't know when when the scene is happening in the whole timeline of max deciding he's gonna kill himself and then the end but then you know again and other movies have done that better but putting putting all of these things together just the like cutting in the stock footage and it's put together in such an interesting way that it, it needs to be seen but i doubt you'll love it <laughs> It's it's also I mean it's ridiculously sexist. <laughs> That's the other problem. Anything that women are in this for, considering it's critiquing sexism as used by consumerism, this movie has no women in this movie serve zero function other than sex. Cleo is the only main character who's a you know the um, secretary of the marketing guy Farson. She is there just to go to bed with him and then have let him have his uh, spiritual awakening. And then all she gets is, you know, ruined from it. So, yes. Well, she's she's the only one with a conscience in this movie. And I think we're supposed to, you know, see her as as the conscience of the film. The problem is that she's not developed enough as a character for us to really get invested in her at all. So whether, you know, there's. There may have been an idea there to make her more interesting, more, you know, more of an important character, but, uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't come out in the finished product. Shouldn't this movie have been called Once Before I Die? <laughs> it, it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> now we move on to the Mary, the movies uh, that we, we love and. I picked an all-time favorite from uh, from 1967, and that's uh, Playtime, Jacques Tati's masterpiece. I'm not the only person to think so. I, I know it's it's not the favorite movie of his for a lot of people, but uh, it definitely is the most impressive achievement by Jacques Tati, who made a, a bunch of movies uh, as the character Monsieur Hulot, Mr. Hulot's Holiday, and and Mon Oncle, or I think might be better gateways into the world of Jacques Tati because they're uh, simpler and and. Uh, have uh you know playful silent movie type humor in them that uh, that that draws you in but uh yeah playtime is just such a uh, such a film for people who are obsessed with movies I, I i can't think of any movie that makes you work harder at paying attention to what's happening on the screen than this film but also, no other movie gives you more payoff for really paying attention to what's going on on the screen. I, I, I mean, I'll give a, a brief plot summary. Uh, it, the plot doesn't matter at all. Monsieur Hulot, this is the third film where Jacques Tati, the director, plays this role. He plays a little bit more of a minor role in this one, but he goes to Paris to have this 
meeting with somebody in this in this modern building. I don't think we ever know what this meeting is about, but he can't ever seem to find this this person that he's uh, he's trying to have a meeting with with this you know maze of cubicles in this building and uh, you know all sorts of modern conveniences that that confuse this so old fashioned kind of guy uh, who, who is Monsieur Hulot. He he gets lost and ends up at this trade show for office equipment, and he thinks that he's still in the office and so there's a lot of uh comedy involving him being sold things but not realizing he's being sold you know this a door that you can slam silently is one of the you know there's a lot is one of the the big gags in there i love but, the greek trash can <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean it's all this this movie is just non-stop visual gags and there's always some kind of gag in there somewhere. You just need to know where to look for it. I've seen this. I, this is probably the third time I've seen it. And and I, you know, I picked up on things this time that I never noticed before. There's still some things where you you know that in this shot, there's there's a gag that you're supposed to be seeing. But, you know, sometimes I don't see it. I, I still haven't found the gag in every shot in this movie, even though I know that there is one. This is also the other sort of major minor character in this movie is Barbara, who's an American tourist who's on this in this tour group uh, with a bunch of middle-aged ladies. She's young and beautiful and uh, and wears this green dress so she stands out from everybody. But uh, the, the joke is that they're they're on this tour of Paris, but all they see are these modern buildings and and none of the sites that people normally go to see when they're in Paris. And so it's a, it's a commentary on modernization and how humans get kind of uh, you know are impressed by the modern but also get lost in it. The whole second half of this movie takes place in this restaurant, this uh, you know opening night of this restaurant, and it's just one disaster after another, uh, and it's a it's a real it's a real set piece, you know, like an hour long set piece with just things going wrong in this uh, in this restaurant. Um, but that's that's it. Like, there's not much plot in here. It's more just uh, you know satire on modern life and technology, and just a framework for a million great visual gags watch this movie more than once absolutely and watch this movie on a big screen if you can the first time i saw this movie actually was in college and in uh in a movie theater they had some special screenings some special print it was like one of those things that i happened to walk past a bulletin board that showed that it was happening and i had nothing else to do so i showed up completely randomly and it was one of these like you know mind-blowing experiences that you're like oh my god like old movies can do this kind of <laughs> mm-hmm. even though i was already interested in in a lot of these movies but i had no context walking into it and and it completely blew my mind and then yeah every every subsequent viewing it's only gotten better and better and better and interestingly this movie had mixed reception when it did come out and i think because it's just so it's so far away from what any other movie in the 60s is doing and even movies are doing today that it is it's so futuristic <laughs> <laughs> you you really you do need to see it multiple times like it will blow your mind it is insane it is it's a masterclass in cinema like i have a very hard time describing it in any other way because it's just such a brilliant brilliant piece of work or as i call it the ladies man remake (laughs) just kidding in multiple previous episodes you've talked you have this theory of comedy 
where it, you can't shoot it in, in long shot, that you lose the comedy. But this movie is shot completely in long shot. There are no close-ups. You don't really get to know the characters very well. There's no storyline to really involve you in what the characters are doing. Like, everybody in this movie is a type, you know, a comical type. And you love to see, the like, you know, the little short fat guy with the camera show up in, in every scene, just sort of wander through. This movie loves people and all different types of people, but there's no you know protagonist to connect to. So between that, the the sort of lack of characters and shooting comedy and long shot, this seems like everything that you don't like about '60s comedies. Aha! Uh-huh, but that, my dear, is where you are wrong. Because here's the thing: as you said, there are no characters. There is no plot. So you don't need the close-up because that that's what the close-up is giving you. That's that's the comedy when you're telling a story, you need to see what's happening. This doesn't tell a story. <laughs> you know, this is this is just it's sitting there and observing and it brings you and that's what I mean by this is just so far and above and beyond, you know, what people have done and what people are still doing that it is it's still progressive and still fantastic for what what cinema can be because the whole story is really told it's told through sound effects. It's told through the the rhythms of life. I mean, like this is doing everything that every pretentious documentary filmmaker always thinks that they're doing by showing random clips of, you know, nature or even what Hero Stratus was thought it was doing by showing strippers and cows being slaughtered. And and yet we get it from Jacques Tati showing a guy who just keeps getting hit by the door on his way out or something, you know, like these sort of really like minute details that are so inherently human and yet we don't have a specific word for them. You know what I mean? Like these are things that we experience every single day that we project onto people, these same sort of generic uh, types. You know, you see somebody on the street and immediately you've made up in your head, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, like that's, you know, this is who that person is. You know, you don't think about it. It's not something you're like actively considering, but you know, this this movie is sort of it's riffing on all of these little things that we do every single day and we don't notice. And in that, like that's that's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic. And that's all there is to it. So you don't need a detail. I don't need to see, uh, you know, exactly what's happening. I can hear it and I can see it as far away as as it is. I mean, as far as these long shots of these gags, like it, it really does. I mean. Chaplin would do that in silent comedies so you could see, you know, the entire body and, and, and the physicality of it. But there's something that's even more connected to to live theater or live performance with with Tati. I mean, he doesn't the camera moves very little. There's mostly a camera set up and you see some things happening. I mean, it'll cut to different angles so you can see it from different angles. But really, it's you know, you really kind of feel like you're you're sitting in the audience of a, of a theater. Like, you know, it, it feels very vaudevillian and, and Tati is, is famously, you know, really, a, a, you know, obsessed with the, with the circus and, and clowning. And, uh, and so he really, he, he wants to give you the experience of sitting in, in the audience of a circus, watching these clowns perform. But he also is such a master of composition. I don't even know what to describe it, how to, how to put things in the frame. Like I can't, so many of these gags wouldn't make any sense on a stage. It needs to be filmed. And a lot of it is just the scale of it. I mean, he built the the entire set 
of of Paris. Like none of this was shot on location. One of the one of the best gags is you know these tourists who've come to to see Paris. Only the only shots you ever get of like the Eiffel Tower, or the Arc de Triomphe is in you know reflected in the windows. When somebody opens a, a glass door, you kind of see oh, there's, there's, the, there's the Eiffel Tower across the street. You couldn't do any of these jokes on the stage. So, so you, you feel like Tati maybe turned to films. His ambitions were such that he, you know, these, these ideas, these gags that he had couldn't do live. So he wanted to capture that live feeling, but, but on film. That's why this is so futuristic, though. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of movies that really like in directors who really lean into that. And not just like like CGI special effects. This this couldn't be done in real life because it can. Like you can always come up with something like symbolic uh, that you could you know do in a stage play or or you know with with practical effects that will look just as much like the dragon as the CGI version of the dragon. But the stuff that Tati is doing on this is stuff you really can only do on film. Like I'm tr- I'm really trying to think of other ways that this could be possible. Uh, unless you built like some, you know, hangar stage like he did and have an immersive <laughs> play where everyone has to walk through the entire thing and everything's moving at the same time. You know what I mean? Like it really leans into the medium and that's what's so fantastic about it. We joked about this being a, a remake of the ladies man, but even that feels more stagey, like you way feel more stagey. Like, yeah. And I mean, and that makes fun. And that one is all about breaking like, like Jerry Lewis, <laughs> This is so this is what Jerry Lewis wishes that he was. And and I say that with having more respect for Jerry Lewis than I ever did previously, but this is exactly like what Jerry Lewis was on the on the skirts of and never fully got past. He never got past himself and his uh you know having to continually bring everything back to his own face that he didn't get to this point. And I think that that's part of what makes this movie so brilliant is Tati's complete humility in in the face of the future in the face of of his own film you know like he's not the main character and he clearly didn't want to be you know he didn't it, it, it's something that it, it brings in this level of existentialism and this but it's but it's done so sweetly you know what i mean like it, it's not like a damning film about how none of us matter but it is a film about how none of us matter <laughs> it's a film about how you know i love all the travel posters where they're like come to rome come to spain and it's all the same glass building in every single that's, one of them that's right across the street from one of the posters exactly exactly and and you know it's this it's also i mean for 67 here we are now living even more so in these glass buildings than they were even back then when this was the anxiety of these you know, mid-century modern architecture. It's like now I sit here and, and look at buildings that I looked at as a child and thought, well, that's ugly. And I look at those now and I think like those are brilliant and beautiful in comparison to the piece of shit they just put up down the block. <laughs> but, you know, so it's, I don't know, this movie is, there's a like, it's really humble, but it also is is about the sort of the, the beauty of these tiny little in-between moments or the beauty of making a human connection in a traffic circle, <laughs> you know, and, and this sort of bringing it back to no matter how drowned out we all are by our, our own minds and in the world and technology and artifice and, and anything as far from nature as we can possibly be the further from nature we possibly get, we still at the end of the day, come back to, 
you know, there are our own little human peculiarities and quibbles and, and strangeness and just how strange it is to be a person and how beautiful it is to be a person. And it's just such a like meditative and, and bizarrely thoughtful film for something, as you said, has no plot and doesn't go anywhere. And essentially also as a vaudeville film, it's, it's about physical gags, but it's such a brilliant, beautiful movie. I'm not even sure that, I mean, it's a satire, of course, but it almost feels like more of a convenience. Like what Tati is trying to do here is trying to like give you the pleasure of people watching, you know, just sitting in an airport or in a, you know, on a, in a cafe on, on the street and just watching people go by and seeing the, the, you know, the different faces and the interesting things that they do. But I think for, for Tati, it's like put these people in situations where, where they're a little uncomfortable. They're with things they're unfamiliar with, like people, people doing things that are in their, their routine are less interesting. Like it's just, they're just behaving as themselves, but get them a little out of their routine or put some, you know, bizarre piece of new technology in their hands or, or put them in a, in a new restaurant where things keep going wrong and, and see how they react. It's, it doesn't feel critical at all. It feels like, let's just see how your average person reacts to with things they're not comfortable with. And it's perfect. The restaurant scene is also, I mean, especially knowing handful of people that work in that industry and, and, um, or have opened a brand new restaurant. Uh, it seems completely accurate, (laughs) like, like not, not at all exaggerated, but even that also, it, it has this sort of beauty of, of not only how people are reacting, but also this, like, you know, how, how often we take for granted what is happening behind the scenes that make the experience that we're having as flawless or as terrible as it becomes. There's, there's so much that's moving. There's all these moving parts, these sort of mechanical, but human, (laughs) human mechanical situations that we're, we're always taking for granted, which I feel like even during a pandemic was, was kind of interesting to consider too, because this is, again, is, our essential workers, right? Like this is all the stuff that we, if you're not in that industry, you take for granted. And if you're in that industry, you never want (laughs) to be around it ever again. Like, you know, you, you just don't, you know, too much. And, and I think that's true for most industries. Anyhow, you know, if you, you're constantly doing something for work, it doesn't become fun anymore and, you know, vice versa, but it's so funny and it's smart and and there's so much to it that doesn't, uh, that's unsaid obviously because there's like no dialogue. (laughs) So it really asks you to sit there and meditate with it or not, or just enjoy it and just enjoy the the fun of it and the people watching this of it, which is, which is as enjoyable as sitting there and and musing on it. Yeah. I mean, I think the object of Tati's satire is more this idea that people think things have to be just so, or people are sort of aiming for this, this flawless, these shiny surfaces where everything is, is perfect, you know, and, and people, you know, people striving to do everything just the right way. But as, you know, as the restaurant starts to fall apart, as things start going wrong, everybody in the restaurant starts to loosen up. Like everybody becomes more human. Like it's, people start finally having a good time because the band gets electrocuted so they have to leave and and so you know barbara gets on up on stage and and plays the you know the one piano tune she knows and drunken american rich guy is is just you know he's kind of a troublemaker but he's 
and you think, oh, who's this who's this awful American guy? But by the end, he's like sort of creating this atmosphere where people can just kind of be themselves and have a good time. And uh, yeah, it's uh, you have to watch this on the biggest screen that you can find. Yeah, just so you can see everything. There's so much happening. If if you're not feeling patient, don't watch it. Just just don't even, you know, and, and not that this is a slow moving movie because it kind it isn't. The restaurant's a little bit of a dip, but it's also really fun. I don't know. No, I, I love the restaurant. But I also think don't don't make this your first Tati movie. Watch Monsieur Hulot's Holiday or uh, or uh, Mon Oncle first just to get a taste for his style of comedy, which is related to, to silent comedies. Um, but but also doing something that's that's very different and and sound is such a crucial part of it but uh yeah get get used to to seeing how you have to look for the jokes with his earlier films before you attempt this one this was my first tattoo and i liked it all right (laughs) (laughs) but i also do like all that crap my the other thing i'm curious about now is that because this is such a five-star film for both of us where is it going to show up in our our list of top movies that we have ranked on litterbox it's I mean, it's got to be right at the top. I mean, we've got, there, there are only two or th- I feel like this is a top three. There are probably only three or four movies where we've both given them five stars. So. But who are we booting? Yeah, you'll, you'll be seeing that at the top of the list when, when I get the, the latest edition out. Scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you took the assignment, literally, and you married a, a masterwork, and... Uh, I took the assignment and said, let's watch this fun movie called The Sorcerers. (laughs) (laughs) That is anything but a masterwork. It is anything but a masterwork, and uh, and it's not the Friedkin movie. It is by directed by Michael Reeves, and it stars uh, Boris Karloff, and it is a science fiction horror movie that, uh, I mean, it's not a great film, but I love it because it has all of the, it, you know what, I, I love science fiction more than in horror, even though I think that this, that's, that's a character flaw on my part because people get this out of horror and I don't always get it out of horror, but I love science fiction because I love having these movies that even if the movie itself isn't that well done, the concept is so interesting and intriguing and lingering that it kind of overrides any flaws that I have with this film. And so this movie, I also watched this Actually, you know who introduced me to this was Rachel Guma, who was our um, guest for Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, well, it's got liquid light, so of course it was her. Exactly. I, I think that's how she got me to see it. I saw the Anthology uh, Film Center, and it's great. It is about uh, this dark Dr. Montserrat, Boris Karloff, and his wife, and he is trying to f- practice medical hypnosis, and they are dirt poor they need money desperately nobody's showing up and he's invented this crazy machine that uses liquid light in order to allow him to like feel the other person's experience through hypnosis physically feel it 
but it also allows him to control the other person. <laughs> so, you know, if you want someone to say, say, here's a practical application of this would be like, if you want someone to stop smoking, you would then, I guess, get into their body and then suggest to them to stop smoking uh, and, and, you know, feel the pain that they feel or something. I mean, it, it seems only ominous like i don't <laughs> i don't there's really no way that this ever would have been like a not um corrupt way to to, to practice psychology or whatever he's trying to do medicine um and well when so, boris when boris karloff explains it like he's he's boris karloff so you assume right. oh he's <laughs> here's a mad scientist and he has nothing but uh, bad intentions but he you know he runs off a list of all like practical application all, all good things that you could do with this technology but uh seeing as this is a horror film all of that that falls by the wayside very quickly and things go go wrong i'm sorry i interrupted your no it's like yeah he, he's explaining all this while he like you know is he's rubbing his hands together and licking his lips kind of thing but um yeah and so so what that ends up happening is that they they essentially kidnap a young person <laughs> this guy mike um, well, they don't kidnap him. That's what's well. sort of that's well, no, the, but what you they made invite me him, it. they invite yeah. him to their his house. But it's a young person looking for a new experience. So it's also connecting to sort of the youth culture of the time. So it's not a kidnapping. It's Mike, who who has been spending all day with his hot French girlfriend at the club and his friend and he's bored and restless. And yeah, he wants a new experience and he wants to do something. And so he's angstily leaves the club and is walking around the street where he meets Boris Karloff, who says, hey, kid, you want a new experience? <laughs> Come up to my house. Which is uh, not kidnapping, apparently. But um, so he takes him to his apartment and they they strap him to this device which utilizes liquid light. And they sort of sit like a seance that both Estelle and, and Dr. Monsterat and Estelle is his wife, uh, Catherine Lacey. And they realize essentially that they not only can tap into the the mic experience whenever they want it but they um can can control him and he doesn't have any sense of it because he's hypnotized so immediately estelle realizes that she can now gain all of the experiences of youth that they haven't ex had you know because they're all both old <laughs> very old and um she becomes sort of drunk with with power and so the the rest of this like at first she says well you know we're so poor and all i want is a mink so let me get him to go steal us a mink and they they control him uh to to do that and then you know she starts to realize that like i can just do anything i want through this man uh and, and nobody's gonna know there's no connection to us we're total strangers and she kind of like hits her husband over the head and says i'm now taking i'm mike is mine <laughs> i am the captain now and uh and and so the rest of this film is about mike realizing very slowly that something is something's happening to him and he don't know what it is and people are now getting murdered <laughs> <laughs> it's a great movie it's fun you actually you made me watch this before we even started doing this podcast i think you said oh have you ever seen the sorcerers maybe you're just you know, on a high from freshly watching it. And uh, I said, no, what, what is this movie? Oh, from the director of Witchfinder General? I hated that sadistic <laughs> movie. <laughs> yeah, this is very different from that, if you've seen that Vincent Price uh, Inquisition movie or witch hunt movie. Yeah, and it captures sort of um, 
swinging London nightlife. So I like that setting of it, but but sort of plops this old fashioned horror idea into the middle of it. It's uh, yeah, I mean it's 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 schlock. It's a little throwaway, but having now watched it twice, I I can say I do have a bit of fondness for it. It's. Uh... <laughs> Here is the thing is that it is I, I love this this concept. I think this movie is strangely and mistakenly feminist <laughs> <laughs> because you have this this old woman who wants to live vicariously through this this young man and she has nothing else. And her husband has ruined her life because he's he's so unsuccessful and such a crackpot uh, medicine man. And. Then what happens is the second that she gains the power, a taste of the power of being a man in 60s society, number one, it's just this like power trip for her. And it becomes this thing where, where you know, it's a vicious, it's a vicious movie. I'm not saying that this is like, you know, it, it's an empowering movie. It isn't. But like realizing that she's a man and she can do anything and be anything that she never could have been as a, as a woman and especially not as an older woman. Uh, she takes all then this internalized misogyny and it gets made exterior. And now she's like killing other women for being too beautiful or like, you know, I can just do this. Like I'm a man, like I'm, you know, and she, she's kind of like, it's like, it's like the Sims too, you know, like it's this way of like, she realizes it, it's like everything that we do on the internet anonymously. It's this way to like live out a pure fantasy of, of just the most wretched and, and vicious in, in messed up things uh, that she can just do in person and it doesn't matter. And I just, I like this, it's such a weird, crazy, it's like it invents the internet and it invents the Sims. Like it, it's this really bizarre movie. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I was really looking for some of that subtext, watching it a second time thinking, Oh, I bet, I bet I'll see some things this time through that uh that I didn't catch the first time some some subversive stuff some you know, some social commentary and you know I saw a thing I saw places where it could have gone made it more clear that that's what it was trying to do like there's clearly a generation gap thing that it, it's exploring you know you've got this old couple who who missed out on the you know fun freedoms of of youth today and you know, there are a lot of things like that that it could have explored more, but I, you know, looking for those things specifically, I saw that they're, yeah, they're, they're only like, they're only there kind of accidentally. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and if there was more, if there's more to it, the, you know, if there's, there's more subtext there, they, they edited out those scenes. No, there, this movie does not know what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> the subtext is not there. It's, but it is, it's like this strange, it's like totally it, it, it's all by accident though. I mean, you know, it is about her. I mean, that's she, she plays, you know, this, this boy, like a video game because she, she experiences this liberation that she, she never had before. And the whole um, part about her will being stronger than her husband's, you know, it, it's so easily, the movie is dismissing this as evil old lady, but there's just so much more to that, <laughs> that, you know, it, it's not in the, it's not in the film particularly, but it, but it's all there. They just never like, I don't know if it was just that, you know, maybe somebody wrote this and, and was afraid to be honest about it or, or what, or they just never literally didn't think about it and just thought like, old people hate young people, let's make a film. <laughs> but but it it's it's really interesting to watch and and think about it and and bring that to it because otherwise 
I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. I like, I just can't watch this and not see it. Yeah. And I think that uh, the person who plays Estelle, Catherine Lacey, is responsible for a lot of that because yeah. she's by far the most interesting character in this movie. She does a fantastic job and and sort of, you know, shows some depth to this character that, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't necessarily in the script. The, the way that she sort of comes out of her shell is really kind of subtly done. And that that sort of wins you over more than anything else in this silly movie. Definitely. It's very it's very Twilight Zone. Yeah. Plus, you get all that, as you said, all the the fun swinging London stuff. Like, I love all of the posters on his uh, bedroom wall are awesome, and and all of the there's like all this great like music on the radio that's not I, nothing I recognized as a real song, but it's all very like fun '60s kind of rock. Yeah, and you've got Mike is is sort of this the same character we've been talking about in 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 a lot of these movies from this era. He's this you know anti-establishment oh this is the way things are supposed to be done well i'm i'm not going to do it that way i hate i hate the way that everybody else does uh, does everything so i'm going to rebel against it i'm going to do something completely different so it's got that that energy there with that character he's not very interesting or or well developed so you never really get on his side as far as that goes but it's uh it's it's coming from that that similar that similar place. Plus, and both with all that like awesome Moog liquid light transformation scenes, it's, it's all timer, man. Yeah, I will never watch it again, but I'm not sorry <laughs> I've watched it twice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know this is what, in a way, actually, it makes me think of Last Night in Soho because it it kind of did Last Night in Soho better than Last Night in Soho did, and it still didn't do it. I, I let someone yeah. needs to hire me to remake this movie. All right, I'm just I'll, putting that I'll out keep there. my I'll keep my eyes out for. <laughs> I can make a really good version of this movie. Well, now we're on to the kill portion of the program where we've each chosen a film that we hate. Would would not mind uh, seeing Lost to the, the Sands of Time. Again, this is, I tend to have a different approach to this than Jenna does. Movies that I really hate, I don't, I tend not to want to ever watch again. So I never re- pick the really awful movies. I pick movies that I have disliked but have a feeling that if I watch them again, maybe I'll like it. Um, and and that was definitely the case again this time with uh, Richard Lester's How I Won the War. went through like like everybody when they go through their Beatles phase they watch all the Beatles movies and then think all oh, this stuff is great then they watch all the Richard Lester movies like the knack and bed sitting room and think oh this stuff is great and I've got to watch how I won the war because that's got John Lennon and it's got to be amazing and uh you, know, you watch it and think oh this is uh this is I don't shit. get it <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is this is terrible I don't I don't under, this is this is boring. This all these people are acting wacky, but I don't know what any of it means. I don't remember when I saw this, but I was, you know, probably in high school and and I think the real problem was that so much of it went over my head. It's so British, and that was my biggest issue with it, I think. It was like, oh, I, I'm I'm not British enough to to get this because it's set 
During World War II, Michael Crawford is a grammar school boy who uh, manages to get into the uh, the officers program with with all these uh, public school guys and and uh, thinks that oh he's made it because these aristocratic types have have accepted me into their club of, of officers. Yeah, he's he's sort of a, a bungler and and just sort of full of this this patriotism and uh, and does does all the wrong things. He's given his own platoon, his own troop, and uh, is sent off to North Africa. You know, in the middle of yeah, you know, this is set in nineteen. 19- 45 and uh, he and his troop are supposed to create a uh, a cricket pitch behind enemy lines so that when the rest of the army arrives they can play some cricket have uh, have some R&R once they defeat the Nazis who are who are in North Africa um, so already it's got a barbed satirical setup, but then you've got this useless guy who who you think, oh, he's of the people, like like all the people in his platoon, so he should. Uh, you know he should be able to relate to them, and they should be able to relate to him as as their lieutenant, as a as a great leader. But no, he's he's got these delusions of grandeur and really does not care about the people in his in his platoon at all. It's narrated by him in this really arch way where he's telling his own story and he's not aware of himself. It's only when we watch these these things, these idiotic things that he does uh, to get everybody killed that we understand what he really is. Uh, John Lennon is, is grip weed and uh, plays a pretty minor role in this. He's, he's fun and does a good job in his role, but he's not any more important than some of the other Richard Lester's favorite uh, stable of, of comedians like uh, Roy Kinnear is in there and it's clapper. And, and he's, uh, he's pretty funny. He's always talking about his wife at home who's having all these affairs, but she's not really because we see, we, we flash to her on the home front. Who's just watching her slutty neighbor across the street, having all these affairs and, and talking about them to him, like, like she's doing them herself. And I, it's a whole mess of different comedy styles, but so much of the comedy is just in this really quickly delivered dialogue that it's hard to catch everything that's happening. It's sort of the the opposite of a Tati movie where you're missing all sorts of jokes just because they come they keep flying at you so quickly. And because a lot of it is so British and so army related that you don't always understand. As as an American in 2022, I don't always understand what they're talking about, and uh, and that that was a real turnoff for me the first time I saw this long ago. But I love this movie now. I think it's it's another one like Tati, where the more I watch it, the more I'm going to love this thing. I look forward to the day when. I watch this and think that it's an absolute work of masterwork because <laughs> I'm with you every time I watch it. Uh, I like it more and more. And it's exactly like it's exactly what you said. It, the, the whole thing comes at you so fast that it's impossible to pick up on what the hell's happening half the time. You're trying to like figure out where they are, what the plot is, where they're going while they're sitting here feeding you these like droll, like dry lines of humor. It's, it's almost like somebody reading catch 22 to you three times speed. It's not as good as catch 22, but like, I think the failure in this movie is a failure of just adaptation from page to screen. Like they, they needed to clarify the dialogue more and, and cut, the whiplash paste of it because like when you're reading a book like this it's easy enough to sort of read it in your own time and speed and and take a minute to laugh at that line and then get on to the next one and laugh at that line and this movie does not offer you any break <laughs> <laughs>
it's just continuous, continuous. And, and they're funny too. And it sucks. Cause like watching this now, especially I'm with you too. I, the first time I watched this, I, I went in knowing it was probably my mom, you know, as, as a Beatles fan went and saw this in theater is totally thrilled when it, when it came out and then left thinking, what the hell, <laughs> <laughs> you know, from both Lester and, and, and the fact that John Lennon's barely in it. And like, you know, she hated this movie. So when I when I first saw it, I had at least an, a sense of like, this is not going to be the movie I, I want it to be. But um, it still caught me off guard and it still confused me. And, and I didn't I, it just I didn't get it. But um, watching it this time around, uh, I, I realized that it does like they're really good lines like and, and there's there's an interesting I, I also like some of the stuff that he's doing with like d-day stuff where like it's just like uh, hundreds of helmets in the sand dunes and and the way that when everyone somebody dies or gets shot in his platoon they come back as a little green army man in, in various colors like a plastic army man and then of course you have um lieutenant good body saying like why couldn't you be more like him he's so great you know and you see them as essentially as ghosts continuing with the platoon and, and becoming these sort of voiceless and faceless soldiers that that are remembered fondly even though when they were actually alive everyone hated each other and they they were totally incompetent uh and so like you know there's there's a really interesting thing that richard lester is doing in this film and i also enjoy like good body talking to we see him being captured by a German soldier and they're having this like very like thoughtful conversation together where they go on about like, well, you know, how many Jews have you killed? He's like, Oh, well, you know, I try to find the, the good in everybody. And, and this sort of like, of course the two soldiers from, from opposing sides when they stand together and they have a, a nice upright British chat and, and there's actually plenty of things that we can agree on, like killing those Jews, but not, you know, not in that way. Like, you know, this is very, this sort of classic, you know, critique on jingoism and, and critique on, on just, you know, this, the, the, the like war <laughs> and everything that, that, you know, is, is completely ridiculous about it. And it's good. It's just hard to follow. Yeah. I wouldn't change a thing about this movie in all honesty. Like I think any failing with this movie is because I, I haven't watched it carefully enough. It's so surreal and the comedy is so fast paced and so many different styles that just so rich. It's I the first time I saw this movie, I would have never said that, oh, yeah, this is this is a movie that that'll grow on me. The more I see it, the more I will love it. But after seeing it a second time, I realized that it's just so rich with satire and and comic bits that uh it, it may be up there with, you know, my favorite Richard Lester movies at this point. It's it's definitely one of his most rewatchable. I would change some things, but but I'm with you. It, it's I mean, I love also there is there's that widow. Um, they show like someone who who is uh, bombed to hell and, and the, the widow who's sitting there opining on on the glory of war. And, you know, and the soldier is sitting there like it, it hurts. And she says, oh, run it under the tap. You know? <laughs> <laughs> really flippant humor. I also loved how they bring in like the Lawrence of Arabia theme and the and bridge on the River Kwai and, and like all of these references to these other films. I mean, I do like war movies quite a lot and, and I love more than anything satire on war movies because they're just there's as much as i love lawrence of arabia lawrence of arabia is is full of propaganda all of these movies are full of propaganda and i just love a good war movie that can turn that that lens back on it and and show you like and, and maybe part of what is frustrating about this is that there's just 
everyone's awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone's awful. Nobody is good. And, you know, you don't have anyone really to, to stick with because they're all just horrible people that, that shouldn't be there. And, and, and that's really the, the sticking point is that just nobody should be here. This shouldn't exist. This whole concept is, is ridiculous. And, and it doesn't matter if you're good or bad. You don't deserve this, this treatment. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it, it's the reason it's not effective in, in punching holes in like Lawrence of Arabian Bridge on the River Kwai is that you can't keep up with it. Like it's that it's all there and it's all really smart. But I mean, I guess if you want if you want to make a movie that is an effective anti-war film that tells you all the reasons why officers are horrible and the way that they view their men. Like there's so many targets in this movie that it can't be effective in, in hitting all of them, uh, at least on our first viewing. So if you really want to like make people think and make people appreciate your movie, maybe you do have to make it a little simpler than this is. But it has young Michael Crawford. He's great. That's a phantom of the opera. <laughs> Was that how you see Michael Crawford? 100% how I see Michael Crawford. <laughs> I was actually so, I was so confused the first time I watched this. I was like, really? Like, but he, he has like such a high voice and he's such a weeny little dude. But nope, he turned into the fan of the opera. He'll always be Condor Man to me. That's, That's some, that age gap at work. Z, Z grade uh, Disney, live action Disney superhero movie from the early 80s that he was in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what what there is to say about this movie. I mean, we could go through all the like different ways, and that it's it's you know tries to tries to tear down the class disparity and in, in in the you know in wartime military structures. But I, I don't know. It's just you know watch this movie and watch it again, and and each time you watch it, you'll see a little more. But it's not uh, yeah, it's not particularly effective as a you know, blow you away the first time you see it kind of thing, I guess. It does have some unforgivable blackface that is harking back to a sort of vaudevillian use of blackface, but um, I didn't, it didn't feel justified to me. Mm. But it's done in in a really dark way. Like it's, I'm not any more offended by that than the jokes about like, yeah, but you killed Jews. Right. Right sorts of jokes like yeah well everything besides that it's it's meant to make you gasp and it it definitely does do that it definitely yeah i mean it's it falls into that um satirical comedic use of blackface that is knowing and yet still blackface (laughs) where it's like uh, i guess yeah but fyi but i agree you should re you should rewatch this movie especially if you've seen it and you hated it Give it another chance. Maybe turn the subtitles on if they exist. I didn't have subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's time for the worst movie of the of the evening. <laughs> <laughs> I had chosen something else initially, and then I pivoted to this after watching um, Hero Stratus because of the axe carrying scene and the advertising theme, which um, both of which are near and dear to my heart. I love doing that. Um, and I work in advertising, but, um, I decided, and, and I, and I'm really happy I did this and we'll talk about this after we talk about this movie, but I decided for, uh, to kill, I'll never forget what's his name.
from 1967. I cannot say this movie without doing a horrible uh, British, like horrible Cockney accent in my head that sounds like Dick Van Dyke, even in my own head of, oh, never forget what's his name. You know, like I can only do it like the hitcher from Mighty Boosh. Your Oliver Reed impersonation sounds a lot like that, too. <laughs> Have I done an Oliver Reed impersonation? All the time. Oh, this is um, directed by Michael Winner, my my favorite. Just kidding. Uh, it stars Oliver Reed and Orson Welles, both my favorites. Not kidding. A man named Quint, played by Oliver Reed. He works for an advertising agency, uh, which is run by Orson Welles. And Quint um, shows up to work and he destroys his office desk with an axe and says, I'm done. <laughs> I hate this and I'm leaving and I quit. And Orson Welles says, you are, are the best man in this agency. There's no way that we're going to let you quit. And Oliver Reed says, tough shit. I've quit and I'm done and I'm out. And I'm actually leaving advertising. I'm going to go back to my school buddies um, publishing company and I'm just going to get a job writing for the publishing company. He has He's married with kids and he also has several different girlfriends. Marianne Faithful is one of his girlfriends. And, uh, you know, he's trying to break up with everyone and, and, and leave everything. He's basically, it's his midlife crisis is sort of what's happening, even though he says he's 32 in the movie or something, though he was younger in real life, but it doesn't, doesn't look it. And, um, yeah, he's like basically decides to, to just restart his life. And so I don't know, this movie kind of follows him as he wanders around London, just hanging out with various women that he of course is, is sleeping with constantly and, and just having a, a crisis of, of, I don't know what to do. And yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like what else happens in this movie. Well, he starts uh, going out with the secretary at the, at the literary magazine and, and she sort of is a positive influence on him because she's, uh, you know, young and idealistic. And everything that he wanted to be when he was younger, but uh, but lost when he joined up in, in the advertising world. Right. And then what happens is that, to spoil the film, Orson Welles ends up buying the magazine that he's working at, um, which then leaves him as his boss yet again. And so in, in retaliation, Oliver Reed says, I'm going to make the most offensive and awful commercial that I can possibly make just to embarrass you. And it turns out that everyone thinks this is just the most clever and best thing. That's it's kind of like the producers. And yeah, so he, you know, he, he keeps winning despite the fact that he wants to fail and he wants to restart. It's so hard being a man in the sixties. Yeah. Well, now let's get into why this movie is so awful <laughs> because it is. <laughs> I, I couldn't stand this movie there. Uh, I mean, to be fair, there's something a little bit fascinating about it. It kept me interested because I just wanted to see what would happen and how far it would go. But it's, it's basically, I mean, it's essentially a James Bond fantasy movie. Like every woman in the world wants to sleep with this guy. Why? Who knows? He's the greatest advertising director of all time. Why? Who knows? Just because they say so. He's supposed to be every, every man's fantasy. We're, we all want to be exactly like Oliver Reed, Quint in this movie. We want we want his life and we want the freedom to like reject the man and just return to the you know what's meaningful and and yeah, another one of those movies where it's trying to appeal to the the anti-establishment crowd, but it's just um 
feeding them a bunch of bullshit. The the problem with this movie is that it's trying to appeal to the anti-establishment crowd, but it's made by Michael Winner. <laughs> <laughs> and he, yeah, he's a Bond man. He, um, I mean, like in the sense that him and, and, and Oliver Reed both think that being a, a man's man is is the key to everything. And, and that's the... Not to say that the anti-establishment was not also hardcore misogynistic because they were, but this is like a different strain of that that I think even follows more closely with conformism than they think they are. But it's like, because their idea of not being a conformist is like cheating on your wife. You know what I mean? Like that's their idea of like, I'm breaking down the system by slapping women and then betting them and like leaving them. Like, like that's what they think, you know, this is like Michael Winner's interpretation of peace and love <laughs> for men, you know, it's for men. Uh, and so there's, there is a clever statement in this movie about selling out and like, you know, the claws of capitalism, but they have to show it through Oliver Reed, who is always drunk and belligerent. And um, it, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> it just, it, you know, it, it has some visually interesting moments. I think the commercial he makes at the end actually looks basically like hero stress. Yeah. And how I how I won the war, actually, because yeah. it sort of intercuts what's really happening. Like you've got this this fantasy gloss, this glossy fantasy on the surface, but then it like it inserts stock footage of of atrocities that are that are really happening to make you to turn you off from this fantasy, apparently. But really, you know, I guess it's an interesting statement on art cinema crowds that. You know, they they need to be shocked. Like if something shocks them, then they, they think it's a successful piece of art. But I don't know. It, it, none, none of it comes together in any way that feels authentic. So I even if there's a message in there that's worthwhile, I I, I didn't see it. No. And, and because, again, it's like the, the, what Michael Winters thinks is true is like being drunk and violent. <laughs> Like that's it. Like that. That's all he has, and and so it just doesn't. It it's not really a great alternative to conformist bullies. Like it's kind of the same message. It's just my version. You know, it's like the it's it's like a libertarian takeoff of conformism because it's like I want to do all of that, but for me. <laughs> so it just doesn't. You know, it it doesn't it doesn't work. And and I gotta say that like rewatching this. Which I never had any. I never wanted to rewatch this, and then I, I couldn't, I couldn't resist after watching Hero Stratus. But um, especially for just the axe carrying around London, which is such a striking, uh, and, and memorable part, part of part of this movie, is pretty much the only thing people remember about this movie. <laughs> whenever I've talked to anyone about it, but um, I, I did like it a little bit more than I did the first time, where I just thought it was just this like so advertising bro sexist. Like this time around, I at least kind of understood more of the, you know, that anti-establishment thinking, even though I, I think he gets it completely wrong. <laughs> but, um, you know, and all the women are super flat caricatures. They all get punished or shamed or made fun of. There's a really ridiculous car accident. <laughs> oh, the, wor the worst. That's the worst crime that this movie makes is that my least favorite trope in, in all of moviedom is get rid of the right. inconvenient woman trope and, and, you know, create some artificial tragedy that way. Right. That you're meant to actually feel bad about. Yeah. And it's so ridiculous. You can do nothing but just like scoff. <laughs> <laughs> It's, this is one of the worst examples I've ever seen in this movie. But I actually thought that there were some attempts to make Georgina the this his secretary that he's he's now dating and is kind of saving his 
his soul and is, you know, is his conscience played by Carol White. There are some attempts to make her give her some dimension, get to hear a little bit about her past. And she's a little, you know, she's she's young and kind of scared of sex and she's likable. She's the only likable person in this movie, but it doesn't go go far enough with her. And if you want to blame Michael Winner not caring about his his female characters, go right ahead. Yeah, I mean, there's. It's another movie, you know, you can also hire me to remake this movie. And I think I could do a, an okay job with it. Um, but it, it's in just, the problem is that Michael Winner is just such an unreliable narrator. And, and Oliver Reed, they're both unreliable narrators. They're both like hugely insecure conformists. <laughs> and, you know, it's silly to watch them try and make a movie about what was happening in the late 60s. Because all they've got is like, boobs, sex, uh, violence, man. Men cannot be men, need more boobs. Like that's about <laughs> all they have going for them, uh, you know, for what they think is happening in the swinging 60s. And it's just so childish. It's silly. There is a lot of punching in this movie, considering the subject matter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so many slapping, like kid, like rough, really rough kissing. Like you get the sense that Oliver Reed really sucked to kiss. <laughs> it looks painful. And then he like slaps them and then he kisses them like really roughly. And it's, it's very strange. And it's not like a thing. That's not like a character thing. It's just Oliver Reed. <laughs> but it's like those the, the his uh his school bullies show up for no like he goes to a reunion and brings uh, Georgina and and that turns into a fight. And it seems like none of that is there except for him to be like Yeah, not so bad. Yeah, heroic his heroic side, like he's willing to take a punch for something he believes in and you know, stand up to the bullies and there's a very, and maybe this is also just the Britishness of it. There's a very specific strain of a type of conservative conformist that they're going after in this movie. But it, to watch it now, it really just feels like like the, 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 the layers of difference between who Oliver Reed is and who those guys are is like splitting hairs. You know, it's just like they're they're kind of the same guy. It's just that one has a snootier accent and, and shorter hair. Yeah, I mean, he's, they're all public school kids. They're all rich, bratty kids. But, uh, right. you know, Oliver Reed is played by uh, this Cockney bloke. So that automatically aligns him with the, with the grammar school kids. So he's, and of course, they're, they're, the poor kids are so much better than the, than the rich kids. We'll just, we'll just, you know, take, take down all the, the upper classes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe you have to be British to appreciate that anti establishment stuff a little bit but well personally i'll never forget i'll never forget what's his name so these these movies were more thematically linked than usual we can usually find something that uh that you know some some little strain that runs through all of the movies that we do for kiss mary kill but it seemed uh particularly clear in this one yeah, and that was actually interesting too because the only one that was chosen purposefully was was this last one and the other ones were were by chance. So, like we're talking about anti-conformists, we're talking about con confronting fascism, we're talking about confronting uh conservative ideals and striking out and and a lot of that stuff is it's like catnip for me. <laughs> a lot of an anti-consumerism too is a huge Yeah. Yeah, hardcore. And I love I love that stuff. And and I even when these characters are like semi insufferable, I still like I love watching it. Like, I can't wait to get to Putney Swope at some point, because 
that kind of does all of this, but but even better, uh, even though it, that movie has its own flaws. But but all of this is playing in that same patch of sand. <laughs> it, it's all kind of it, it's a very similar, you know, they're all they're all similar, similarly connected. And, and I I just I love this stuff. And in part because it, it, it rings true today, you know, maybe not the specifics of it, but the overarching feeling and and messages like it's very interesting for me to look back at at the anxieties people had about consumerism and capitalism in the 60s and to see just how much worse it's gotten (laughs) you know and and we knew it's like one of these things where you're like you know everyone thinks they're the first one to realize that mcdonald's is bad or whatever the hell and then you you know you go back and you look at this and you're like oh we were very aware (laughs) (laughs) at all in every stage of this yeah and personal fascism how i uh, we we all we all can can behave like fascists on a on a personal level that we you know following our desires and not caring who we hurt in the process and you know in fact enjoying um, making others suffer so that we uh, we can get exactly what we want uh, i mean that's playtime is is a notable exception but i think the rest of them are all very much about that i'll never forget what's his name maybe is not aware that that's what it's about was trying to get you to align yourself with the with the fascist um and i guess uh, herostratus too to a certain degree i think there's an interesting connection between fascism and anti-establishmentism it's you know two sides of the same coin and you see that in in all of these movies. Playtime is a, is the most gentle version of that message in a lot of ways because it really is about how people are stuck in their own little boxes and they are following their gut to do the thing either that they need to do because they have a job and that's what they have to do and they they feel like you know everyone in that movie is so nobody else is looking at everyone except for us except for the viewer in the audience you know everyone else is in their little bubbles. And so it's sort of interesting to see how people can be in their little bubbles and yet still move together and, and move as one, even though they're all kind of chasing their, you know, what makes them happy or, or they're only thinking about themselves in this moment. And so, like, I think that even that has some connection to a lot of this, even though it's a much more different message and it's a lot less, it, it's much more uh, removed. It's, it's, you know, out of its own head and, and way more self-aware than any of these you know, so-called <laughs> self-aware art films are in a lot of ways. So it's it's interesting to watch all of these together and, and just see the the different layers. Like I feel like we could even like order these movies in layer of most self-aware to, to least <laughs> could like create like a, a different sort of like rainbow of, of these films to, in order to watch it in order to to get towards something consumerism and consciousness and self-entitlement. Yeah. Definitely all anti-propaganda or advertising to, to one degree or another. And uh, I'm not even sure I would be able to order them in that regard. They all seem equally against, you know, here, here's what I've been told to, to like, told to appreciate, told to believe in. Here's the real story. And they that's what every single one of these is about. Totally. Even the sorcerers, to, to a certain degree, I guess. I mean, even that, it starts with uh, Boris Karloff putting a little advert in a, in a window at the tobacconists. You get a little advertising in there, too. That movie's great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 19, 1967, what a, what a year from these movies alone. Yeah. 
Yeah, we could honestly. We, we could do a whole I podcast. Could spend a on, month. Yeah, I'm. I'm saying the same thing you are. The whole podcast could be on this one year. The whole po- I was going to say I could spend a month just watching these these six movies over and over again. Oh, really? <laughs> going absolutely insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get to all of them. A, cu- a couple of these I do intend to watch again and again. I'll never forget what's his name, right? Right, exactly. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.